Jesus prayed for his disciples and said, I ask not only on behalf of these, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. Please pray with me. To God in heaven, we ask you, as we do week by week, to be here with us in this place this morning, and we trust that you have kept your promise and are here. May my words be your words, and all of our thoughts, your thoughts. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please sit. I was, I think, a junior in high school when I first dunked a basketball. It was actually sort of happened by accident. We were doing layup lines in practice on my high school team, and I started just sort of trying to see how close I could get to the rim before laying it in. And then one time the rim was sort of just right there, and I grabbed it, my, my first ever dunk. And after that, of course, I was addicted. That's all I wanted to do over and over and over again. There was a time even a few years later when I was in college um, when I could do cool dunks, like reverses and alley-oops and actually dunk in games. I was the exception that proved the rule that white men can't jump. Except for me, I would proudly proclaim. But of course, life goes on. College turns into seminary, which turns into kids, which turns into white hair, which turns into playing basketball way less often, and all of a sudden, 6'5", 185, turns into 6'6", 240. (laughs) That's one inch and 55 pounds, and that's what life does to you. But if anyone ever asked me, sure, I could still dunk. And I actually could. Of course, the circumstances had to be just right by that point, right? I had to be wearing just the right shoes and shorts, and the floor had to be nice and springy, but I was still able to tell myself, and most importantly, tell other people in my life that I could still dunk. I was someone who could dunk. But then I got to an age when it became better just not to test it, right? The last time I had tried, I could dunk, so why risk it? Then, uh, after a while, even later, uh, it became something that I would purposely not try because I was worried about what might happen if I did. I wanted to be able to still tell people that I could dunk, and so as long as I didn't try and fail, history showed that I could dunk. No one had any proof Otherwise, the circumstances at this point were just never right. You know, I always had the wrong shoes on, or I was in jeans, or my knee was a little sore, or something. You know how it goes. There's always something that's just not quite right about the situation. There was always something stopping me. But as far as anyone knew, I could dunk. Then, last week, I was playing basketball with Patrick and some of his friends after school. Now he's in uh, third grade. It's a pretty great ego stroke, actually. Uh, In order to make it anything like fair, all the kids had to play on the same team against me. And if I might be so bold, I was able to still do anything I wanted against them. I was crushing these (laughs) elementary school kids. But then it all came 
crashing down in an instant because one of the kids asked me if I could dunk. And it only took a moment's sober reflection before I realized that I had to say no. There was no getting around it. I'm 41 years old. Remember, one inch and 55 pounds. And all of a sudden, this carefully constructed edifice was being torn down just moments before I had been destroying these kids, easily able to differentiate myself from them. I could dunk, and they couldn't. But just like that, it was over. I no longer, after years, had this very important way of differentiating myself from them. These third graders and I were one. In John chapter 17, Jesus prays and asks the Lord to make his disciples and anyone who would come to believe because of their ministry one. He says, Lord, make them one. And to our ears, especially in today's climate, this sounds a little bit like a candidate for president, right? Begging Congress to set aside their differences and work across the aisle. Make them one. And this is something that everybody wants, right? Who's against oneness? And the question, though, that we ask ourselves every election and every week and every day, actually, is how do we actually do this? How might we actually become one? How could we accomplish it? Because the way that most people, myself included, of course, the way most people work toward oneness is to go around and try to convince people to come around to their way of thinking, right? Let's all be one my way. That's what oneness looks like to most of us. And of course, no 21st century Christian could possibly hear Jesus' prayer here and not feel at least a little bit judged by his words. Father, make them all one. Just think of all the myriad ways that we Christians are not one. Roman Catholics, Presbyterians, Lutherans, disciples of Christ's, Episcopalians, non-denominational evangelicals, United Methodists, Southern Baptists. And that's to say nothing of our own ACNA church, which in a very real way, not that long ago, said, we don't want to be one with you, and started something new. We are anything but one. Oneness is so hard to achieve because it's so easy to look across that proverbial aisle or across the street or across town and look at those other people and see how different they are from us. They read the Bible that way. We read it this way. They like that kind of music. We like this kind. They like that kind of food. We like this kind. They raise their kids that way. We raise our kids this way. They use that kind of language. We use this kind. They raise their kids that way. I already said that. They vote that way. We vote this way. You can tell already that I'm not talking about church anymore. Right? Every day in our lives, we look over and see them. 
and think about how different they are from us. It's not just in churches. It's in neighborhoods. It's in families. It's in relationships. We're right and they're wrong. We're good, they're bad. They, quote unquote, just don't seem to have a lot in common with us. But then we make a fatal mistake. Because other people appear to be so different from us on the outside, we assume that they can't be very much like us on the inside either. But that's just not true. They're just like us. They are just like us. They can't dunk either. Notice that in our reading, Jesus isn't actually telling his disciples that they need to be one. He's praying to God to make them one. The difference here is instructive, I think. He's not telling the people who are following him, and by extension us, he, as he refers to us as those who will believe in me through the word of the disciples, he's not commanding us to go about setting aside our differences to become one. This is not so much a commandment as it is a diagnosis. He's invoking Almighty God, praying directly to his Father in heaven to make us one. To show us that we, in fact, are actually one. And all it took for me to be made one with those elementary school kids was one short sentence. Can you dunk? That question was the great leveler, the thing that made my carefully constructed defenses come tumbling down. For years, I had been the guy who could dunk. I was separate from everyone else. I was me and they were them. And now, I was just like them. That question had the same effect on me that hearing the Lord walking in the Garden of Eden had on Adam and Eve. Remember from Genesis 3? After Adam and Eve eat the fruit, God comes walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and man and woman are terrified. The reason they're afraid is that they had transgressed. They had broken God's law. And in Scripture, the law is that great leveler. Do not eat of that tree. Love your neighbor. Love your enemy. Turn the other cheek. Forsake all others until you are parted by death. Do not resist the evildoer. Sell all you have. Give the proceeds to the poor and follow me. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Be one. All of these things are great levelers to us. They make us all the same. This is the function of the law. It announces the ultimate oneness, right? As the doors sang, no one here gets out alive. The wages of sin is death. Remember that you are dust, and to dust you shall return. That's what Adam and Eve heard in those footsteps in the garden. It was the embodiment of God's law coming to see 
what they had done. And so, of course, they ran and hid. This is just like the jailer in our reading from Acts. He has his jail come crumbling down. And, of course, his first thought is to kill himself because he knows he's transgressed. He's made a grave mistake. He's supposed to keep these people in prison and they're going to get out. And when he realizes that they're still there, his first question is, what must I do to be saved? He has been leveled by God's law. And of course, for the jailer and for us, this leveling is not the end of the story. The law makes us one in our sin so that the gospel can make us one in our salvation. The law levels the playing field. We are all in total need. And the gospel comes to that leveled playing field, announcing that our needs have been met. The impossibly high standard of God's law makes us one in our sin so that God's saving grace can make us one in our salvation. In Galatians 3.28, St. Paul writes that there is neither Jew nor Greek There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And so Jesus' prayer is answered. He asked for oneness, and here it is. The gospel itself has achieved it. In Christ, we are one. It is done. There is neither Jew nor Greek, no Racial distinctions. There is neither slave nor free. No socioeconomic distinctions. There is no male or female. That most basic distinction that we have between us. We are all one in Christ Jesus. We can extend it. There is no high church. No low church. No Democrats. No Republicans. No contemporary music. No organ music. There is no Kentucky fan and Louisville fan. No Anglican or Episcopalian. There are no good people or bad people. We are all one. In Christ Jesus. It is done. And of course the in Christ Jesus part of that sentence means everything. We're not one because we're all okay. No, we're all one because no one is okay. And because Jesus is our redeemer. We remind ourselves of this each week. You'll hear it in a few minutes. Jesus is the propitiation, the perfect offering for our sins. And not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. We are one in him. Jesus prayed, Father, I desire that those also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory, which you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. This is good news. We will be with him in life eternal, not because of any distinguishing thing about us, but because of everything about him. So the doors were right. No one here gets out alive. 
The law has killed each and every one of us. We are one. No one is righteous, says Paul. No, not one. And the wages of sin is death. In this, we are one. But we are one in another way too. In Christ and because of Christ and on account of Christ, we are raised from the dead. In, through, and because of the finished work of Jesus Christ for you, you have new and unending life in him. You are one with him today. Amen.